I sit on a couple different working groups for organizations that will take policy forward for educational use of AI. And I sit in that room and I think we need a bunch of 10 year olds here. We need a bunch of 15 year olds here because they are thinking and talking and processing about this stuff in ways that adults have not even started to think about. Welcome to the Learning to Change podcast, where we explore the power of the modern learner's lens and put the focus on learning. I'm your host, Melissa Emler, and today I have a conversation that delves into AI in education with my guest, Jody Britton. Jody Britton is the Director of Learning Technologies at the Team for Tech Foundation. As a relentless advocate for leveraging technology to empower social change, she is a former teacher and professor specializing in innovation, learning, and measuring impact. She is passionate about finding ways to optimize teams through data-informed decisions and evidence-based practices. She supports people and organizations in building solid foundations by sharing the tools that empower her work and the work of the communities she has designed. Jody has been featured in USA Today, Edweek, EdTech Magazine, and many more. In today's episode, Jody and I discuss AI in education. Like with most technology, the two of us are apt to support its integration and implementation. We aren't into fear-mongering or trying to control things that are not within our control. We know shutting AI down in schools is a laughable suggestion. Having said that, we do believe in measured risks. We discuss data privacy and the labor of contributing to the training of large language models. Jody and I are both advocates for equity and accessibility, so we dig into that a bit too. While we don't manage to solve the world's problems as they relate to AI, we did uncover the biggest change we expect to see. When Google first hit the scene, teachers were encouraged to ask better questions. If it can be Googled, it's probably not a great question. Remember that? We do. But now, instead of focusing on teachers asking better questions, everyone needs to support students in their quest to ask better questions. That will have the biggest impact on successfully using AI in the classroom. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Jody Britton on AI in Education. Hey, Jody, so great to have you on the Learning to Change podcast. I'm so glad you're with me. So, how are you today? I'm good, Missy. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to talk about AI in education. And I have to say, I'm I'm not trying to get caught up in all the buzz and all of the uh, brand new teacher candy stuff. I want to get to the real meat of what this means for education. And um, I think that you have a lot to contribute. I would love to hear all of the things that you've been participating in as it relates to AI and education over the last few months. So let's just start with, what are you thinking about it? (laughs) That's a big question. I think I'm seeing a lot of buzz right now, and I'm really excited to see what makes it through the hype cycle. When we looked the other day, uh, somebody had pushed out a list of all the AI tools just in education that have emerged just in the last six months. 
and it is a good 800% more than those that have made it through to sustainability. So right now I'm thinking about who's going to be left standing when all of the hype kind of settles down. Well, and what's interesting to me is there are lots of those lists and there are lots of lists of like amazing prompts uh, (laughs) to do. And I haven't found a tool or a prompt list that I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so great. I'm not excited about any of them at this moment. And it feels being somebody who's always sort of been in the field of ed tech and always been the early adopter, it feels sassy for me to say that. Um, I feel like I'm cheating on the world (laughs) or something because I'm like, that's not exciting. But I'm very excited about um, the potential and the progress that large language models offer us. So the world of AI in relationship to large language models seems really exciting. I really love my chat GPT. Yeah. I really love the image generators. I'm not very good at uh, getting things that I find useful in the image side of it yet, although I think that's because I don't have a strong skill set in art, design, color theory, all of those, like yeah. all of that background information you need to prompt the yeah. image side of things I really am lacking. But yeah. I like those initial basic tools and um, I'm nervous that the new tools are putting lipstick on a pig. So yeah, yeah. what are you seeing? Yeah, absolutely. There's so much conversation and even among school boards right now in terms of what's our AI policy going to be? Mm-hmm. And I keep thinking folks, you've been using AI for a long time and you use it everywhere, every day, and you don't know that you're using it every day. Um, I was talking with a a superintendent recently who said, well, you know, we're we're just really worried about AI and assessment. And I said, well, do you use uh, any tests created by ETFs? Well, yes. Yes, I do. Okay. Well, for how many years has ETS had a natural language model processing and evaluating essays like so long and they don't know. Right. So this, Mm -hmm. this superintendent in particular had no idea. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people are, are thinking about AI in two false ways. One, it's new. (laughs) And two, Mm -hmm. it is, it doesn't have anything to do with an algorithm. Um, And by that, I mean, in in this past case with the superintendent, they were very much worried that um, an algorithm was going to be assessing their kids. Well, an algorithm has been assessing your kids. Now there's a language model that can assess your kids that works and feeds into that algorithm. But it's like this really weird conversation of this is new. This Mm -hmm. is not something that we use every day. We're going to ban it. We're going to kick it out. We're going to set all these rules around it. And, but when they go through, I had created this list of like all the things that typically are used, you know, that feed off these engines and these language models. And when you show that list to educators and leaders and policymakers, it's kind of this light bulb moment of, oh, (laughs) when I'm typing it in a Google doc and it finishes my sentence for me, that's AI, that's AI. When I am, you know, writing an email and it corrects something, when it auto-completes, it's AI. You know, all those things. I don't think people understand that that is powered by artificial intelligence. I agree. I think that 
when the large language model came on the scene and now you can predict, you know, full sentences, paragraphs, five paragraph essays, um, when the large language model can process and spit something out in a much longer way, like much, much more um, product that it's producing, people get nervous about that, but they don't understand that we've been taking baby steps to this space for a very long time. Yeah. The first, you know, college degree or in computer science where they started to work on AI and it was part of a degree program was like way back in 1950. Yep. And we have to realize that this is just the development. I do believe that the large language models part of AI is as impactful for me personally as it was to get the internet. Like I believe personally, and I've used these models since November 30th, 2022, when they came onto the scene, because as you know, I'm an early adopter, but I believe that they have changed my life as significantly as the internet changed my life, which happened like the internet came into my life my first year of college <laughs> in 1995 and 96. So I I believe that we are at the very early stages of what will become normal and I'm definitely embracing it and it feels as impactful. But what I'm nervous about is there's going to be a lot of money grabbers um, developing things that aren't really going to make any significant changes. And I think that's where we need to be really cognizant of how we're selecting the tools that we're using and why we're selecting them. So during our um, last at Team for Tech, we have the opportunity with our community to do workshops and, and trainings and conversations and things like that. Um, we did our last one as a three-part series on ChatGPT. And as part of that, we kind of created this uh, because there was nothing else, right? There's nothing else for us to use. <laughs> we created a rubric to kind of assist educators and even after school program folks in the nonprofit sector, a rubric to kind of help them to determine which LLM powered tools to use, you know? And in that, we really focused on, you know, what's the use reason? Um, yeah. What's and the purpose? So yeah. often people create multiple tools that have the same purpose and then they think they need to use both yes. tools at the same time. So yeah. I think always understanding why you are using the mm -hmm. tool is really important. What's the form and function? Yep. And yep. then so you don't duplicate the tools. And, okay. So what else are you asking? Well, and I want to make sure that people are actually being forthright and saying we're using an LLM. A lot of people now are. Um, you know, like uh, Duolingo, others, they've used these things for so long. Now I think people are being more forthright and saying, we're using this because it's selling, you know, yeah. and it's innovative and it's seen as innovative. So they, they want to make it more known. I don't think that's always been the case. I think it's been something rather technical that you left off the docket. But, you know, I want people to know if they're using a tool, is it built or operating in collaboration with a large language model. And if it is, say it, like make it clear to your audience. I think the other thing that we're really pushing forward is the whole data capture process and idea and how we are uh, creating or not creating um, data that goes into that data set. 
one of the tools, a chat PDF that we've used for a while now. I love that on their site, it says right there that they are not, uh, that they don't store any of your data. So once the session closes, it's gone. You know, mm-hmm. um, we need to be, we need to expect that more. Like, how are we going to make sure that we're not contributing inappropriately, you know, to, to a larger data set? I think uh, the whole free or paid thing is changing every day, every hour. Um, so mm-hmm. I think people just need to be very clear on that when they're selecting things. Um, I think also kind of the date of inception, like when was this created? How many users does it have? What version are they on? You know, um, we looked at it, quite a few tools just during that three-part series and looked at um, how many things had obviously just come out, you know, but there wasn't a lot of discussion about that. So, but when people talk about, you know, our version one came out here, our version two came out here, we're currently in version three, we're pilot, like all that information is now going to be really important to people, I think. The other thing too is the accessibility piece and the training model, specifically with bias, um, to make sure that, you know, we're looking at that. Um, one of the things we talked about kind of in parallel to that rubric was the whole idea of the testing in multiple environments and if it uses an open or a closed language model to inform its process. So if it's using a structured library of vetted tools um, like Elicit, who does uh, its only published research, published peer-reviewed research, that's Mm -hmm. a closed model where it's only using the information it can find within those documents. Um, That's probably going to be more reliable with your research base. And it's more up-to-date because everything that's published last week is in there already today. Right. I think that's also the conversation between open and closed models is really important because I think um, right now, most of the open AI pieces in ChatGPT are in an open model. But I think the real value at some point in the real use case for um, school districts, corporations, you know, large entities will be in the closed model where they can actually train their language, their large language model on their vetted information based on their either proprietary knowledge or um, their proprietary work or their specific opinion or bend on specific information. And I personally find that really important in terms of the work that I'm doing. So our I serve as the statewide systems coach for UDL in Wisconsin, and we have been building a library of videos, training courses, support docs, podcasts. We have tons of resources that we've been building over the last five or six years through a grant project we've been working on. And we have the ability um, through one of our tools to create our own universal design for learning bot, which is solely trained. It's powered by ChatGPT on the back end, but it's only has access to our materials. So the responses have like our language in them, which is feels really good and it feels a lot safer from, <laughs> you know, a, a like response kind of way. Like we feel comfortable that if we give people access to our bot that they're going to get answers that are 
relevant to what we would suggest, where if you're just in the open ChatGPT environment um, or the BARD environment, you know, you're sort of subject to anything on the subject on the web. (laughs) You know, you might be getting lots of information about learning styles, which has been debunked how long ago in your responses about learning design. And we really want to avoid that because people take, you know, what comes back to them sort of, they don't have the literacy skills yet to sort of discern, does this make sense or does it not? Absolutely. And I think, I think a lot of our international audience is actually above um, the grade on this. As U.S.-based organizations, it's very easy for us to jump into ChatGPT and have it generate a few things and not see the errors there. In talking with a colleague from uh, from Kenya uh, a couple weeks ago, I think it was now, she mentioned that even if she goes into ChatGPT and and gives it a really juicy prompt, you know, and you and I have talked about the juicy prompt, like mm-hmm. it's not just, it's not a search engine, don't treat it as such, but like, right. how can you help it contextualize what you're looking for? So in, in this case, she had put in a prompt specifically saying, I teach in Nairobi in a STEM-based program in an active learning environment. Can you develop, you know, and it was asking it to develop a, a template for a makerspace lesson plan or something like that. You know, she said it did great in like the, the general response. But then when it came to actually contextualizing what it was saying, it was completely US-based, um, mm-hmm. not informed at all. So I, I feel like our, our international colleagues are a little bit more realistic in terms of the challenges and the limitations on what they're getting out of. And, I, and I'm hopeful that things like the AI grant that the Gates Foundation just had out, like I'm very much hopeful that those things that are targeted at those international populations, I, I'm hopeful that that opens a door for conversations that we aren't yet having here. And it lets us understand that this isn't the end all be all, you know? Um, I think one of the things that we've developed too is kind of this framework for thinking about prompts um, just because it can get really messy, you know? So when we looked at all the prompts that people throughout our community were sharing that they were using, it came down to productivity, templates, design and delivery, understanding, information and assessment. We're, we're kind of the, the six areas where everything kind of bucketed itself. And I, you know, I think we're going to need more of those things to be able to say, you know, this is, these are, a prompt is just a prompt unless it has a purpose. So, mm-hmm. you know, what what's your purpose? And really thinking about that. There's been some really cool research though, Missy, that I would be remiss if I didn't bring up. And, and one of those, um, uh, Rudolph was the lead author on it, I think in 2020, uh, 2023, it just came out uh, a couple months ago. But one of the things that they really kind of brought up was that ChatGPT is a call to action for educators and educational systems to really develop self-efficacy in learners and to kind of leverage that internal motivation and personal purpose and assignment so that it's that chat GPT can't answer it. And that's probably out of all the hundreds of articles I've read at this point about just chat GPT that have been published and vetted and, mm-hmm. and peer reviewed. Um, I think that one stands above all of them because everyone else is talking about how educators think 
that kids are going to cheat with chat, chat GPT or they're going to do this with chat GPT. Um, yeah. Are those things going to happen? Absolutely. Are you going to be able to stop it? No. Cause they're going to find another hack tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. But no, they're definitely going, they're definitely going to use it. And so I think about, you know, when Google entered our life and, you know, I was at a midpoint of my career in the classroom, we would go to, um, trainings or professional development and teachers were encouraged to ask better questions. If it can be Googled, then it means our question isn't good. And, you know, we need to ask better questions. Not that most of the professional developments we went to offered ideas for how to ask better questions. That was just the solution. Just ask a better question. I think that the biggest shift with AI and the chat GPT and the large language models is that it's shifting from the teachers asking better questions to the learners asking better questions. And so I I believe that the way that teachers will get better at um, using these large language models is to use it and to also get better at prompting it and asking better questions. But the way that it's going to really be impactful and have an impact is by helping the students ask better questions. You know, we've been advocating at Modern Learners for a shift from traditional education to a shift to a culture of agency and inquiry. And I think that this particular technology is the perfect opportunity to embrace that. But as long as we're trying to stomp it out and put policies in place to prevent it from happening, we're going to miss lots of opportunities to for learners to embrace their agency and inquiry. And I think that that's, that's the biggest shift. And if initially with the Googles, we wanted teachers to ask better questions, and now I think we have to shift it to people, learners, asking better questions. And that will yield a better response and um, something that is, the response will be something to learn from as much as anything else. Yep. Well, and I think too, like we need to, we need to drill down and there's so much parallel between internet coming out, Google mm-hmm. speak coming out, even iPhone apps coming out and the app mm-hmm. store like that. You know, there's so much parallel right now between the whole iPhone app release and the app store release and, and yeah. what we're experiencing today. Well, like the plugins of the plugins that are available. If like open AI could essentially be the app store for all the plugins that will function with the large language model powering them. I have used the plugins in ChatGPT pretty extensively, and I don't think they're ready for the market yet. I mean, I think they're a bunch of crap, actually. Um, <laughs> I have used the Wolfram, langu- the Wolfram uh, plugin, which I find very interesting because of what it can do with data. And again, it comes down to prompting. I don't think I'm skilled about asking questions related to, you know, significant computation. Um, I sort of block that out. Although I have seen it in action and it is fascinating. I just don't know that personally I have the questions to ask, right? I don't even know what I want to know that I should, that would be powered by the the Wolfram plugin, right? Like, I don't know what question I have that would make that a suitable use case. Now, if I was a high school student uh, working on some math problems or working on a data science question, oh, I'm sure that's where it would be. But personally, I don't have a use for that yet. It's going to be interesting to see how, like right now, everyone's freaking out and thinking that this is going to take over 
our brain. You know, like we're not going to be able to think anymore. And I think folks like yourself who have been up that curve and now down it, I, I think that will be the norm of, oh, wait, I can't use this. It can't do my homework for me because I don't even know how to ask it the right question. And I think that's going to happen. I think there's a lot that we need to learn from our launch of one-to-one initiatives, our launch with mobile devices, our launch. Like mm-hmm. we have to think about how we handled the app store as we're thinking about all this stuff. We need to think about you know, how the mistakes that we made. And by mistakes, I mean, like a lot of people were like, no, you can't download that. No, you can't download that. (laughs) And a lot of those no's had to turn into yeses because those products were so good that they saw a huge shift in just kids' potential to create and produce and contribute in really amazing ways that completely were empowering towards agency, you know? I think right now I'm seeing way too much discussion on the teacher side, the the teacher side, the teacher directed approach to using the teacher, you know, teacher productivity, all that, like, yes, can LLMs create content for you and write your emails and all that? Absolutely. Without a doubt, it can do all that. But what can it do for students? You know, so like, as, as I've talked to teachers kind of globally that are using uh, even just chat GPT is their base right now. Like they're using LLMs with students so that students can get feedback. They're using that to support the assessment process of, you know, here's a rubric. Let's see where you're at with that rubric and facilitating kind of that inquiry and exploration to drive things deeper for kids. It's the same conversation we had 10 years ago. We yeah. don't have to spend our time on the questions that we can Google we need to spend our time on the things that really matter. And we're just not there yet. And I think this is shining. I want this to not just shine a light on AI. I want this to shine a light on the fact that we have not yet reached the point, the tipping point where our practice is changing to, to the level in which we can empower our students to use these things. We're not there yet. Right. That's the light I need. Well, (laughs) in Pew research, just, uh, about 10 days ago, and it's like June 20th or something right now <laughs> for context, but just Pew Research released uh, some research that says only 14% of adults have tried ChatGPT. They understand that it's out in the world and that you know there's this AI thing everybody is talking about, but only 14% of adults have actually opened the chat GPT and typed in a prompt. That is actually like, I know I'm an early adopter, so I try to step back from that, but 14%, that's plain crazy. (laughs) So we, we are a long way from these conversations that we're having about the impact that it's going to have on schools from mattering. We are a long way from that because if only 14% of adults in and I don't know if it was globally or in the U.S., 14% of adults, I don't care where it's at in the world. That is actually a pathetic number because we cannot talk about the impact that it's going to have or the change that it's going to have on education or the world, let's be real, if only 14% of people are are talking about it. So just for, for some perspective, when I started podcasting in 2014, you know, those people that research media, anyway, 
I can't think of what they're <laughs> called now. You know those people. They yeah. they do you you would watch TV and you'd fill out that little survey or something. Anyway, when we, I started pod- podcasting in 2014, um, something like 32 percent of adults were listening to podcasts. So in the last nine years or so, we are some somewhere around the 63 to 65% of people who are listening regularly to podcasts. So it takes nine years. Now, I don't think it'll take that long for people to use ChatGPT, but if only 14% of the people have tried it, I think that in my social feeds and my conversations with humans, uh, it feels like a lot more people have tried it because there's a lot more opinions about it than that. So before anybody tries to regulate anything, the first question from them will, from me will be, well, have you tried it? Yes. And how have you tried it? And how have you tried it with kids? You know, And what purpose have you yeah. served? See, I don't even care if they try it with kids. This tool yes. has made me a lot of money because I have leveraged it to complete work that I would have spent hundreds more hours doing. So it has allowed me to bring additional projects into my life. It has allowed me to communicate farther and faster than I would have been able to do without it. And I can't imagine living without it at this point in time. But I think we're rushing to the conversation of what we're going to do with students about it until we freaking do it as individuals ourselves and see some value and benefit from it. I did a workshop for about six people who were super curious and I just said, let's get together. One of them was a senior in college. She was finishing up her final project. She had never heard of ChatGPT, and this was in March. And so she was blown away, obviously. And then she was talking about how she needed to prepare for this interview. So I encouraged her to prompt ChatGPT to be the interviewer for this particular job. I put the job description into ChatGPT. And I said something like, you know, only ask me another question after I've answered your question. She went back and forth with ChatGPT for about 25 minutes, just zoned in, like thinking through the questions, answering the questions. And she sent me a message the next day saying, oh my goodness, they asked me almost all of those questions that she had just gotten into an inner back and forth connection with ChatGPT. And that played out in real life. She's forever going to be a user of this particular technology. But would she have done that if she didn't have an opportunity to practice and try it? No. No. Now she can apply it to her job and it will matter. But until people use it, we're going to be in trouble. Yes. Well, and I I want to circle back to the student thing because just like with the app store, just like with all the things, right? Like our students were kicking our butt in terms of their use compared to ours. If we do not have them as part of this conversation, Mm -hmm. we're going to mess it all up again. And Mm -hmm. I got to tell you, like the alpha generation, they're not going to sit around and wait. Yeah, no, I don't think they should. They're not going to wait. They're going to use the crap out of this thing and they're going to use it in ways that we haven't even thought about yet. And it's like you either get on board and start playing around and learn it. But I'm hating that (laughs) there's no... There's no like student advisory group for this stuff. 
you know, um, I, I hate it. Like I sit on a couple different working groups for organizations that will take policy forward for educational use of AI. And I sit in that room and I think we need a bunch of 10 year olds here. We need a bunch of 15 year olds here because they are thinking and talking and processing about this stuff in ways that adults have not even started to think about. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's so interesting to me that we're just, we're like excluding them from this when, when they know, I mean, even like, I think I've told you this story, like at the tail end of school, when uh, some kids had a project to work on, they're at the kitchen table upstairs and they're having a conversation. And one of them said, I don't want to do this. Let's just have chat chat GPT write it. And one of them said, no, we're not going to have chat GPT write it. Like this is our assignment. This is our work. We need to value it. Like we need to earn our grade. And another said, well, hold on. Maybe we can use it in a different way. So what they did was (laughs) they'd write a paragraph. They'd ask chat GPT if that was accurate or not. Like they were using it as this back and forth, like you know, personalized assessment feedback yeah. engine. And I, I just kind of sat there and watched the whole thing go down. But at the end of the day, I said, hey, you know, guys, I want you to tell your teacher about this tomorrow, you know. And they tried, you know, it was fairly shut down because anytime you start a sentence with chat GPT, you're going <laughs> to, you know, everyone's going to, whoa, stop talking about that. But it's like, let's have those kids that, you know, create some examples of policies. Like this is just, we're going to, we're going to put ourselves in, in the education sector. We're going to put ourselves in the same position as we were before, you know, where we're a day late and a dollar short. I think as the, as adults and as learners and doers, like we all need to be getting out there and using it because you're right. Like right now you can tell just in the terms of productivity and growth, who's using it and who's not, you know, we don't we can't even imagine what it will be in a year right like like we really we like i'm i'm a technology user for sure i definitely don't develop technology i can't code a thing but i really can't imagine where it will be but what i do know is that some of the tech tools that i've seen the ed tech tools that i've seen emerging and coming onto the scene are nothing more than you know a facade on top of ChatGPT, and I can get the same thing from ChatGPT from the free version. And I, I just, I'm a little frustrated that um, we're not sort of being creative or more creative, or potentially we're not just sort of watching, waiting, seeing, using, and then establishing what comes next. Like, I feel like there's a lot of money grabbing going on or positioning themselves to grab the money. And I think it's early. And I think that we should be okay with it being early. And I think that the real work is in the conversations um, about that. So it, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. And again, I get a little passionate about it. And not that I have an opinion yet. I haven't really figured out what it should look like in schools. I haven't, I definitely don't want to shut it down, but I also want to like not have kids using it to write their five paragraph essays. Maybe I don't want people doing five paragraph essays anymore. I mean, let's be real. <laughs> Right. So like if I when I think about it, it's like, well, well, isn't that the same as when they do this or do they do that? So 
there's a lot of thinking to be done and a lot of exploring to be done. And I think that that's the biggest thing I'd like to see is adults that are in those classrooms exploring before we generate an opinion. Yes, absolutely. And just opening it up. And there's really no, like, whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit or a school or a higher ed, there's no part of any of those organizations that shouldn't be engaged with this conversation, you know? Right. Um, DEI, security, like everything from cybersecurity to DEI work to, gosh, even accounting. Like there's so much that can be done in marketing. Like there's no part of an organization that isn't touched by this. So I just think we we need to give people the time, the space and the community opportunity to talk about it and, you know, circle back to, you know, kind of that that future of learning vision that Modern Learners has just in terms of how can we rally the troops around this and get some good things going? Somebody needs to be the the gatherer. You know, you've said that a lot to me over the last couple of years, like someone needs to be the gatherer. And I think this is the moment where someone needs to be the gatherer and it needs to be hyper inclusive, hyper diverse and hyper global. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, with that, that is a good place to sort of send us off in a way. Thank you so much for being here, Jody. I am sure that you will be a regularly occurring guest on the Learning to Change podcast because we have lots of conversations that I wish everybody could be a mouse in the corner and listen to. (laughs) So you will be back. But to those of you listening, as I always say, have a great day. Don't get in trouble. Thank you for joining me today on the Learning to Change podcast. I hope you found our discussion insightful and inspiring. As we continue to explore the power of learning and its impact on change, remember that it's not about pushing yourself or others to change, but about embracing the process of learning. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. If you're ready to take your learning journey to the next level or bring about a culture of learning in your organization, join us in our free Modern Learners community. We are here to help you navigate the challenges and celebrate the successes that come with embracing learning and change. Simply go to modernlearners.community and join us today. You'll find all the resources from today's show in there. Until next time, stay curious and remember, I'm not asking you to change, I'm asking you to learn. Learning to Change is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blaser. Marty Seafelt edits our episodes. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. And Sean McMullen is our executive producer. Learning to Change is recorded on the stolen land of the Sauk and Fox tribes, the Miami Nation, the Osati, Shakawi, Sioux, Ho Chunk, and Kickapoo peoples. <laughs> <laughs>